in email this week uh, with some of the other elders, I was mentioning it'll be a slow, slow crawl back to normal with all things related to church meetings in person, but hearing no one listening while David opened us was, was normal already. This is good. <laughs> right before service, if you're up here, there's the low rumble of everybody talking in the crowd. They're having a good time, which is great. I was not insulting you. I was not condemning you. It was like, oh, we're back. We're back further than I, than I thought. Hey, too, before I get into the message, I wanted to thank specifically the editors and the stewards. If you guys had seen this building Friday and Saturday morning, for those who are here this morning, you wouldn't believe how clean it is today. That was really signally due to their efforts yesterday. Good part of the day, yeah. And and thanks again to Tad and Sadie for making sure that we stream. So if you're at home, you're able to do that because of their efforts. And and Larry's as well. And by the way, we've had, you know, sort of the tsunami effect uh, for Larry especially, but for numerous people here, the building addition was one challenge for anyone working here in the building the uh, streaming service became its own separate issue, and now we've been installing uh, audiovisual equipment to the tune of over $40,000 for the addition, which brings its own challenges as well. So Larry's kept plugging, for which I'm really thankful. And also, before I pray and get into the message, how are we doing with the challenges of the current situation? So first for me, vertically, how are we doing just staying connected with the Lord? So things are not normal. We're not, we're not seeing the normal activity we would with each other, especially. How are we doing at staying connected personally to the Lord, Scripture, and prayer, just on our own? And then how are we doing at specifically and intentionally staying connected to others? You know, whether there's a virus going around or not, you cannot fulfill the New Testament commands to Christians apart from meeting with other Christians, encouraging, exhorting, praying for, you name it. So how are we doing at that? It requires intentionality, thoughtfulness, prayer, etc. So we've got to work at it a little bit more than we might have to otherwise. With that, let me pray and we'll get into the message proper. Father, we do want to humble ourselves before you, and we are so thankful that because of Jesus' sacrifice for us and the presence of your Spirit, we can, Jude tells us, stand in your presence blameless with great joy. Uh, Lord, absolutely humanly impossible, but it's the gift of salvation you've purchased for us, and we want to live as those who've been fully redeemed, clear consciences, freedom. We, we are those who are captives whom the Messiah Christ has set free. We want to live out the good of that, Lord, wisely and filled with your Spirit in all the ways that you call us to. And ask for your help this morning, just with your view of life currently, and Lord, what you want us to take away from the scripture this morning, we ask by your spirit that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the last few months, Christians here in the U.S., which is unusual, but Christians in the U.S. have been arrested for peacefully and lawfully protesting abortion. Some of you have probably seen this online. Christians have been fined for meeting as a church while following all the safety protocols that were recommended this is highly unusual. Christians have been specifically targeted, if you're aware of this. It'd be hard to miss on the news. Under the COVID-19 restrictions, Christians have been targeted around the country. And many, many lawsuits, by the way, have been filed, most of which have been either settled initially in favor of the churches because there's been unequal treatment under the law. You go a little further back in history, and there's no comparison for this. 
Did I do that? I like that little ding, but I'm not sure. I'm green, Larry, but I'm not getting anything. Thank you. At no comparison, really, but go back 15, 16, or 17 or so, Martin Luther. Uh, think of it, too. Here's a guy really singularly in his day. He wasn't the only saint God was speaking through, but singularly, sort of there was a coalescence around Martin Luther related to standing against the world of his day, which really was the Roman Catholic Church and the political rulers of those days. And remember, in Worms, at that, uh, that um, collection of religious and political entities and authorities, you know, here's a guy who's standing by himself against all the powers of the day, and they basically say, recant, what will he do? You know, faced in that situation, everything's on the line, would he recant? Would he stand and, and speak the truth, or would he back down? Go further back in history to the early 300s, Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, exiled five different times by four different emperors, because throughout his lifetime, this was his deal. I mean, he was a godly guy for sure, but it was to Athanasius that, that we owe credit, if you will, the Holy Spirit working through this guy singularly because he was standing up for the, for the uh, divinity and the manhood of Christ, the full divinity, the full manhood of Jesus. It was Athanasius who was pushing that against all odds in his day. We take that orthodox element of church doctrine for granted, but that was not the case in his day. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, this was the second Bible of those who lived through the Reformation period. Fox recorded countless Christian men and women who endured loss of property, imprisonment, torture, and death for Christ. The stories, frankly, they're, all, they're unbelievable, and they were all done in Christ's name. Most of the persecution, of course, done by the church in Christ's name. What gave these recent and distant saints the ability to stand up, speak out, remain faithful when so much was at stake? And no doubt, when they were confronted by fears, just as you and I are today, just as everyone around us is, what gave them the ability to display, to live out Christ-like faithfulness in their day? And we would say, as far as a single word goes or a single description, it would be courage. It would be courage. Christians are meant to be peace-loving peacemakers, Read in the, the New Testament what we're called to. Our words are meant to be gracious, salty, Paul says, helpful. We're called to be patient with all. Proverbs 20, verse 3 is a good one. It's an honor to avoid strife. Solomon writes, any fool can quarrel. Christians are not called to be quarrelsome. In fact, church leaders can't be characterized. One, one translation says brawlers, but quarrelsome. But frankly, there are times when we don't pick a fight, but a fight picks us. What do we do and how do we respond when tensions rise, when threats are made, when we're in peril, if we continue to do the right thing and speak the truth like these saints before us have? Same situations, different times, different places, but those same challenges. What does Christ-like faithfulness look like in those situations? You guys may have to advance for me. I love the tone, but it's just not working. Can I just tell you when to advance? Thanks. Yeah, I need the next one. Uh, so remember, we're in the series, the 57th message of the Heroes and Villains series this morning, and courage is the primary issue. So what we'll look at in the life of Stephen this morning will be in Acts 6 and 7, one of my favorite guys in all the Bible. 
You know, there's not a lot. He doesn't have a lengthy story. He's in part of two chapters. He's significant. Uh, but Stephen's this guy of singular courage, and so we'll look at him this morning in Acts 6 and 7. But to the question of what does Christ-like faithfulness in you and I look like, and what does it require? And one of the things for sure, you and I cannot live out Christ-like faithfulness if we don't have Christ-like courage. Courage is singularly needed to live out the lives you and I are called to. Stephen is the first deacon in the early church. He's the first martyr in the early church. His name is from the Greek Stephanos, which means crown. And he has, according to the scriptures, he's earned the crown of life. The timeline, you want to advance for me, Reagan, or am I good? Should I try? Thank you. We're good. Uh, Chronologically, Stephen's, the story of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7 on your study sheet, it has a little circle, but it's probably around 34 AD. So it's right after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, very early in the life of the church. And the main point we want to take away this morning is this faithfulness requires courage. It's simple, but it's profound, and it affects all of us every day and pretty much in every arena of life you and I will engage in. We cannot practice Christ-like faithfulness. Christ's life, his faithfulness in us, does not get lived out apart from Christ-like courage. I want to develop that theme for a little bit before we get into the text proper. What are we talking about when we say courage? Sometimes people say courage is the willingness to do something, not because you don't have fear, but in spite of fear. That's, That's good. Webster says it's mental or moral strength to venture, to persevere, to withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Described as the ability to do something that frightens strength in the face of pain or grief. Synonyms include things like valor, boldness, dauntlessness, backbone, determination, fortitude, resolve, guts, grit. He has guts or he has real grit. When the English translation translate to the word courage, from the Hebrew Old Testament, it's words that would otherwise infer things like heart, or strength. To be strong is to be courageous. Psalm 31.24 reads, be strong and let your heart take courage. That's the ESV. You just transliterated. It says, be strong, heart, be strong. That courage and strength were seen as synonymous. You go to the Greek New Testament, the Greek terms that we translate to courage include inferences like confidence or especially to be daring or bold. So Acts 23.11, the Lord speaks to Paul and says, Paul, take courage or be bold and daring as you've testified in Jerusalem. You'll testify for me in Rome as well. But it requires boldness. Think of Luther. Standing at the court of his day, it requires boldness for you to continue to testify. And a verse that I think is probably one of the most important verses for Christians in this day, in the current time, is 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. And you remember, the setting for this letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy, is the end of Paul's life. And Timothy's been his protege. Paul knows him well. Paul's going to be gone from the scene on earth, and he wants Timothy to be able to do what God calls him to do, but he knows he's characterized by timidity. And so he tells Timothy this, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And interestingly, the Greek there for fear is not phobos. That would be the typical word that would be used. 
It's delos, and it means timidity or cowardice. Christians don't have a spirit from Christ of cowardice, but of power and strength and sound thinking, that we're not to be affected by fear the way the world is around us. We're not to be fearful people. We fear God. We fear nothing and no one else. And boy, this is a day in which Christians, like everyone around us, is being tempted to live fearfully. This is absolutely the opposite of what we're called to. The life of Christ in us does not, does not present cowardice as a reflection or a response to the challenges of life. In Greek philosophy, which, remember, influenced certainly the day of the New Testament, preceded it, and, and went through that period as well, but in Greek philosophy, courage was one of the four cardinal virtues. The Greeks said you can't live life well or successfully apart from courage, along with wisdom, moderation, and justice. And it was Augustine that defined fortitude or courage this way. He said, fortitude is love readily bearing all things for the sake of the loved object. And think of this for just a second. We won't pursue this. He's combining love with courage, which doesn't necessarily go hand in hand, but the thought would be out of love for God or out of love for someone else, I'm willing to do things that I otherwise would not do. Because I love God, because I love you, I'm willing to face things that are otherwise fearful to me. That love engenders courage. Christ-like love engenders Christ-like courage. Christ-like faithfulness requires a kind of courage that has its roots in a rock-solid confidence that whatever God allows or requires of us can be faced successfully because God is with us, God is for us. You're here for the Sunday School lesson this morning. As Christians, we are not only sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in us. We can face every circumstance, every trial, every temptation to fear because God is with us, God is for us. So whether it's in response to threats, And we'll see in Stephen's life, we're looking at courage broadly, but we're doing so through the lens of his life. So there's all kinds of application we won't get to this morning on what does courage look like and and how does that play out in one kind of particular situation or another. We'll use Stephen as a lens, but we want to ask ourselves for ourselves as we're looking through his story, his trial, his temptation, what does this look like for me? Where do I find myself challenged Not to be courageous, not to be faithful, but to give in to fearfulness. Where where do we need courage? So the first thing I want to point out is this, that courage doesn't stand alone. You think of the Greeks, and, and courage or fortitude is one of four cardinal virtues. They sort of go hand in hand. Courage and other Christ-like characteristics don't exist alone, but like flowers in a garden, they grow up together. Think of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say Christ-likeness is one thing. It gives nine, but it gives three triplets. It's it's the sense that one affects the other. That to have Christ-likeness is have this bunch, if you will, of characteristics. In the life of Stephen, we find that courage grew alongside other outstanding Christ-like qualities. Now, to the text, we're we're introduced to Stephen in Acts 6. And you remember the, the situation was this. The early church, they've come to faith. There's all these people that are hanging out in Jerusalem. They didn't bring enough coin, enough money with them to stick around. There's widows there. The early church is trying to take care of them. And the apostles are saying, we need some help. We want to get some quality guys here to oversee distribution of funds and foods. 
And so out of that, Acts 6 verse 3, the apostle said, Pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Verse 5 says they chose, first one mentioned is Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 10, when he's disputing those who are antagonistic to the Christian message, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So before we see anything of Stephen's Christ-like courage facing up to the same people that Jesus did, you see these other characteristics, Christ-like characteristics are his, before you see courage. Uh, Look at those words again, faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, power, wisdom. He was characterized by all of these. Courage is the last thing we see. So if we look at our lives and we say, man, I'm not seeing much in the way of courage, it might be a good question to ask myself, what other characteristics of Christ-likeness am I missing? Courage isn't going to rise up by itself. The Spirit of God is reproducing the life of Christ in its fullness in it. If we're not seeing courage, we're probably absent some of the other key characteristics of Christ-likeness as well. And I want to work through these. I'm going to work through four of them anyway, starting with faith. Uh, guys, you, uh, faith is the basis of all Christian living, right? The just, thinking back on Martin Luther, the just live by faith. We're saved by faith, but we live by faith. And faith isn't some esoteric thing that's out in the, in the breeze someplace. Faith is confidence in God's word. When people, sometimes well-meaning Christians, say faith is a leap in the dark, that's exactly what faith is not. Faith is never a leap in the dark. Faith is always a response to God and what he has said. You know, you think of uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's based, though, on God's word. And, of course, that's all of Hebrews chapter 11. So faith is impossible if we haven't taken in God's word. So we know, by definition, Stephen is a man filled with knowledge of the word of God. In fact, think of Jesus, Hebrews 12.2 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What do you mean the joy set before him? The promise of the Father that Jesus would rise from the dead. Think of Psalm 16. That he would rule not just as God the Son, remember, but that he is the Son of Man. That's out of Daniel 7. He will be the leader of all humanity as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over a new eternal kingdom that he'll rule over with his bride, his wife, the church. So it's in lieu of God's promise to Jesus that he has joy going into his suffering, courage as a man to face the suffering based on God's word and God's promise. Stephen's a man full of faith because he's full of God's word. He's confident in God's word. He's living according to God's word. We may entertain Courage from other avenues. Other people could encourage us to be courageous. But for you and I, singularly, you and I cannot live out courage faithfully if it's not based on God's word. So are we living in God's word? Are we living out of God's word, the truth of God's word? Stephen certainly was. It also says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit for the last hundred years or so has has suffered, I think, mightily back and forth between the Holy Spirit does one thing or he doesn't do another. And 
I generally say God will do whatever he wants. I don't tell God what he will and won't do. His word says he won't do some things. He won't act contrary to his word or to his will or to his character, certainly. But this is important. And you guys, the theologians call this age of the church the age of the spirit. And again, this was the Sunday school lesson, which I told Tom, we don't plan these things. This just happens. If you were here for Sunday school, you're hearing some of the same things here. That this is the age of the Spirit. The Spirit came down. Jesus said he has been with you, like a partner next to you. But now he'll be in you. The Holy Spirit in Stephen was the power of Christ to live faithfully and courageously. And my take on evangelical Christians today is this. I think, to some significant measure, we're posers and we're pretenders that we're not living out of the power of the Spirit of God, Spirit and power, that we're, we're pretending we are and we're sort of acting like we do, but we don't. And we don't want to fabricate what only the Spirit of God can do. You know, the early church, thinking of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about situations in which folks who weren't Christian would come into your midst and they would say, God is present in your midst because the Holy Spirit was there in power. And Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And guys, we are sealed as believers. Tom's, Tom's passage this morning and teaching was really clear. When you believe in Christ and trust, you're sealed with the Spirit. You belong to God. You can't ever be anything other than God. When you're born again through faith, John 3, you're a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, you're a new being, you're a new eternal being with a new eternal life. That can never change. But we can quench the Spirit, we can grieve the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians 4, I think, maybe Ephesians 5. Stephen was full of the Spirit. That's why you see this courageous stance in Acts 7. What does that look like for us? Are we submitting ourselves to God each day when we get up? Lord, I'm yours. Lead me by your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. I can't do this thing alone, and we can't. Nobody can live the Christian life on their own. It's an impossibility. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. Uh, Greek, uh, sorry, grace is the next one he mentions. Uh, charis. Uh, Greek uh, for grace is charis, so we would say charity. That's from the Greek charis, love. Um, charismatic, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, when we say charis gifts, grace gifts are charis gifts, charismatic gifts. They're given by God's grace. And what we want to think on this is two things. As Christians, we've been graced by God. You and I have been accepted unconditionally based on what Jesus did for us by God's grace. We say we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Stephen had this clear sense of, I'm accepted in Christ by God's grace. And if I know that, I can live out a graciousness towards others that I can't if I'm still struggling to find approval with God or feel better about myself by getting approval from you. So Stephen lived in, he breathed the air of God's grace, and that's why it can say he was filled with grace, with Christ's presence in this gracious understanding, I'm favored by God, I'm graced by God, but also I can live out of that grace towards others because I've experienced it. Stephen was characterized by this graciousness that was part of this 
the Spirit and Christ's presence in him. And the last I want to mention, this kind of goes along with the Holy Spirit. It, he was filled with powers, with Christ-like power. Now, one of the things about Stephen specifically is when we read the account of Stephen, we're meant to see Jesus. So if you look at the description of Stephen and what happens to him, it's point by point. It's a description of the life of Christ. Theologically, Luke is telling us in Acts, Jesus said that he'd be with them here forever and that his life would go on through the church. And so the first martyr in the church looks just like Jesus because Jesus is still alive and well on planet Earth in his people. Stephen's a prime example of that early in Acts. So we're meant to see that. So Jesus performed signs and wonders. Stephen is performing signs and wonders. He, he is, he's absolutely calling us back to see that Stephen looks an awful lot like Jesus. Acts doesn't tell us what he's doing, but it tells us that there's power in his life to perform these signs and wonders. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20. Paul started the church in Corinth, but they didn't think he was all that much. They kind of looked down on Paul. He has to defend himself through both letters to them. But he said this. He said, when I come to you guys, I want you to understand that our interaction isn't about mere words. He said it's about power. That you have guys that are making claims in your church, but they don't have God's power. And he said, I have God's power. I'm God's apostle. He, he chose me out. God's power is present with me as an apostle. Well, Stephen was filled with God's power. And, and like the Spirit, guys, I think that a lot of us want to pretend like God's power is going on, but when it's not, and we're trying to gin up God by doing things in our own strength, in our own flesh, that look like Christian work, but it's not. God's work is accomplished by his power. It's not accomplished by our power, in ourselves or in others. So we don't want to fake it. If God wants to do something, he has all the power in the world to do it. We don't want to pretend we have power we don't. We want to, don't want to gin Jesus up because he doesn't look very good right now. We want to rely on God's power. You certainly see that in the life of Stephen. Before we move on, just this whole, what does this look like for us? Am I characterized by knowledge of and obedience to God's word? Stephen certainly was before he comes up in Acts 6 and 7. Is that true of us? If that's not true of us, we have poor chance of living Christ-like courage and therefore Christ-like faithfulness. Do I entrust myself to the Holy Spirit's leading? The Holy Spirit's a person who lives in us and with us, and he opens up God's word. Have you guys ever done that where you're like, Lord, I just need to hear from you, and you open your Bible, and it's like, bang, right there. It's because God's answering that prayer, and the Holy Spirit is showing you right here. So we want to say, Lord, I want to be led by your spirit. I want to be sensitive to your spirit. Are we living that way, expecting the spirit will actually lead us? Jesus said he would. Do I know God's grace for me? Guys, if we don't know this, you can't breathe out to others God's grace if you don't know it yourself. Unconditional acceptance and favor in Christ. Not because I'm all that, because Jesus is all that. And I'm accepted in Christ. Christ is in me and I'm in Christ. The Father loves Jesus and the Father loves me. If we get that, we can afford to be gracious with those around us because we've experienced it. Same thing we'll see in a little bit is true of forgiveness. 
If I don't know I'm forgiven, it's pretty hard to forgive others. But if I know, no, God in Christ has forgiven me everything, the call to forgive others has a lot more credibility because it's like, okay, Lord, I get it. You forgave me. I'm called to forgive others, the same type of thing. And then am I relying on God's power to transform me and help me interact with others? You know, a lot of times for ourselves, it's like, I'll do better, I'll do better. Remember the cowardly lion says, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. He's trying to convince himself, you know, okay, I do believe, I do believe. I am that, I am that. Well, it's got to be God's power. We abide in the vine, John 15. We abide in Jesus. His life abides in us. His power abides in us. Let's not fake it. We don't have God's power. Let's just say, Lord, we see. We lack your power. What do you want to do in us? What do you want to do through us? But am I relying on God's power? That's certainly the case in the life of Stephen. We are living, I just say this again as a subtext, we're living in a time when fear as an outlook on life is being encouraged. Fear is public policy right now. And this is the opposite of what we're called to as believers. I've written a blog on Applied Heart about this. This is not to say Christians are cavalier or careless about their health or anyone else's health. But it means that we're called to be courageous and fearless and see our lives as stewards, stewardship opportunities. We'll talk more about this here as we wind down. But in, this, in the time we're in, we want to confront all the temptations to fearfulness with Christ-like courage. And part of that occurs through the other characteristics of the life of Christ in us. Okay, so to Stephen, this is Acts 6, verses 9 through 15. And the setting is this, he's disputing some Jews that are come from the synagogue called the freedmen. Verse 10 says, Acts 6, verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Now, by the way, listen to this. And if you just go back to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and what is it, a month or so ago, listen to the point-by-point comparisons of Stephen's treatment with Jesus. So they secretly instigated men, that's one, who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, that's another, They stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. Does that sound like the garden? And they brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin. This is the same group Jesus stood before. And they set up false witnesses, just like they did Jesus. And they said, this man never never ceases to speak words against the Holy Spirit and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. <laughs> There's a mob. He's in the middle. He's the sheep among the wolves. And it closes this section by saying, And all those who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. How in the world do you stand in the midst of this kind of hatred and venom, and you're just fully at peace? And it's just like the angelic, the beatific vision has just come on your face, and you're totally at peace. You're filled with God's love and his joy. So so put yourself in Stephen's position, though, for a minute. He's seized, he's forcibly taken before the same group that condemned Jesus. Same setting, it's point by point the same thing. He knows what they did to Jesus, and he knows they could do the same thing to him. Now, Stephen launches into the longest speech in the book of Acts here, up through 53 verses. 
And the two things he does are this, before he gets to the application. So he points out two things. The first is this. He says God's work in God's people was never dependent on Moses, the law, or the temple. Because God was interacting with Abraham before the law. God was up to all kinds of things before Moses came and Sinai and the temple. And the Jews had lived without the temple, remember, back in their Old Testament history after the the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So he says, God's not dependent. His work isn't dependent on Moses or the law or the temple. That's one thing. By the way, it's a rambling speech. If you go through it and you're looking for the key points, you're like, why is he saying all this? That's one point. The other, though, is this, and this is the more um, applicable point for them, which is what he, he moves to in his application. He points out those guys whose praises you sing today... They were rejected in their own day by your fathers. And you are just like your fathers. So he points out specifically Joseph and Moses. So he says of Joseph, Joseph was hated by his brothers and sold as a slave. But Joseph was God's savior for the household of Israel. Was he accepted as that? No, he wasn't. He was rejected. He was hated. And he says, by the way, Moses, the guy that you claim all this credit and affinity for, how did your fathers treat Moses? Well, they rejected him, not only initially in Egypt, but throughout the wilderness wandering. So he's like, the guy you claim your fathers rejected, and then he gets to the payoff. This is in verse 51. Would you and I be able to do this, by the way? So could we defend the faith singularly? off the top of our head, if we were called to account in a hostile group, and then could we come with this pointed application at the end of that? He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, at this point, Stephen knows his life is in the balance. Now, put yourself in his shoes for just a minute. So I'm just going along. I start my day as a normal day. I used to tell my girls in the, when I was a firefighter, you know, you'd run a fatality that day, a person in a car wreck or what, whatever, And I'd come home and tell the girls, you never know which day is your last. You don't know when you wake up that you're going to go to bed that night. You don't know. Stephen wouldn't have known. Day starts. He gets up, has his breakfast, has his Wheaties, whatever. And he goes out and he gets into this argument. And man, one thing leads to another. And suddenly as he stands there like a lamb among wolves, he gets it. My life is on the line. Everything I expected, everything I hoped for in life here is on the line right now. Think of Martin Luther again. What do I do? What do I say? Do I back out of this as graciously as I can? Do I respond in fear? Or do I, in Christ-like courage, speak the thing that needs to be spoken in this setting, in this time? He didn't know. He didn't know what was coming that day. Scripture gives no record of that, at least. What would you and I do? How would we face that? moment. All of his life, all of his expectations, all the future hangs in the balance. 
and he speaks the truth anyway. I was coming to church a couple weeks ago, and I heard Ravi Zacharias on the radio. Maybe some of you did too if you were coming at the same time. He relayed a story a friend of his from Vietnam had shared. And they had known each other in the 70s. And this guy was a, a Christian, and communists took over Vietnam. He was arrested. He was put in a re-education camp, which is its own story I won't go into. But he was eventually released. And after he's released, he connects with other Christians, and they put together a boat somehow, and they're going to flee the communists in Vietnam together. And just within a day or two of their plan to leave Vietnam on this boat, four soldiers approach him. They confront him and they say, we heard you're planning an escape. Is that true? Now, you, he's Stephen. Think, think of Stephen. He's, he's like, what do I say? All of a sudden, I'm confronted. Somebody's asking me, what's the truth? What do I say? Because, man, they might arrest me. I might go right back to prison, the place I can't even think about going back to. And if I say anything, what about the people that are also part of this escape? that I feel responsible for. And so, you know, in that moment, he, he lied and he said, no, I'm not escaping. And they say, no, we've heard, we know it's true. He says, no, I'm not, there's no plan. It's not happening. And he finally convinces them. And so they leave him. Well, he feels terrible afterwards. And guys, this is, this is his situation, okay? This is not, this is his situation. He says to God, his conscience is bothering him. He says to God, God, I'm sorry I lied and I feel terrible about it. And he tells God, he says, if they, if they come back or if I'm asked again, I'll tell the truth. And you know what happens? They come back, the same four soldiers. They throw them against a the wall. They say, don't lie to us. We know you're planning an escape. Tell the truth. And they say, they repeat it, tell the truth. And the same situation, he's already told God, I'm good for it. So he says, you're right. I'm planning an escape. And they say, good, we want to go with you. And he relays that it was the presence of these four strong soldiers and their seamanship that saved the rest of the refugees in the boat when they hit stormy weather. Same thing. I'm on the spot, and God calls me to speak the truth. That's key here. God requires me to speak the truth. Everything's on the line. What do I do? Guys, most of us aren't going to be in these situations. <laughs> most of us. By the way, do you find that speaking the truth is more difficult with your friends or with your enemies? So I want to make sure I bring this up. So here you're in this setting, and, you know, maybe... Maybe Stephen's blood is rising, you know. Maybe it's, it's a heated moment. All these guys are against me, and the gospel's on the line, and I need to speak up. And Sometimes it's harder to speak the truth to your friends, your family, your brothers and sisters in the faith than it is your enemy. And there's temptations in both directions, aren't there? So what could the government do to me? I was talking to my daughter's. And we were talking just as a church leadership, how do we respond to the requirements of the church? And we're saying there's certain things the government may require of us and certain things they may not. And one of my daughters was saying, Dad, are you, I, I just said, look, I'm ready to be fined and I'm ready to go to jail. I'm good with that. I've prayed about it. I've sought the Lord about it. I am speaking only for myself here, by the way. 
uh, because I believe at some point the governor becomes the head of the church if the church only marches to the governor's beat. So, so out of that, they're like, Dad, why would you do that? Have you thought about it? It's like, yeah, no, I've prayed about it. I've thought about it, and biblically, this is where I would stand. We have to stand, just like Luther, just like others. So most of us, though, we're not going to face the heated moment where everything's on the line, but we might face challenges where we need to confront a friend, a family member, somebody in the church, and the fears go like this. They won't understand. They won't agree. I'll be rejected. I'll be accused. And guys, by the way, all of these are real possibilities. Uh, I'll be castigated. It won't go well, and often it doesn't. And if I'm fearful, I will never speak the truth in love because there's risk. There's temptation to fearfulness. So I need to be careful. How are we facing times when speaking truth carries risks? So speaking truth, right? There's lots of arenas of life that we're not talking about this morning. This is specifically because the lens is Stephen where it's speaking the truth. It's the willingness to stand up and be counted. But it applies broadly to all areas of life, all areas of life. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's not a, an outlook that Christians, especially in the West and the States, necessarily default to, is it? If I'm persecuted, I am blessed. Oh, that's what Jesus says. I want to move on, too, on this um, courage from a, from a vantage point that we wouldn't normally think about. I'm stuck again, guys. I think I'm stuck. Yeah. Oh, well, you guys catch up with me. Um, It requires courage to speak up. But, guys, something else you see in the life of Stephen is it's courage. It requires courage to forgive and to leave vengeance with God. That's it. Thank you. I listened this morning to a brief... Uh, interview on Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs is a a great Christian organization. It's actually centered out of Oklahoma, but started by an East European uh, who was persecuted under the communists. And they just have interviews. And there's like a minute and a half interview of a guy who was being beaten. And as he's being beaten, he's asking the Lord, what am I supposed to think here? What's my take? What do you want me to think or to say here? It was great because it's right along this line. How do I think of my enemy, the person that's, that's abusing me unjustly. How do I think about him? Well, in Acts 7, verses 57 through 60, back to Stephen's story. So he's pointed his finger at them. He says, you're the ones. You're guilty, just like your fathers. It says they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. This was the Jewish form of capital punishment, remember, was stoning Witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And, and remember, as I read this about Stephen, throw this back to Jesus' crucifixion. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That sound familiar? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And he fell asleep. And again, Stephen... Stephen is, is a marker for Christ. The life of Christ continues in the church. There's all kinds of points I won't go over for time. 
Jesus prays on the cross, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Those are his last words. As rocks are hitting him, being stoned to death is no easy thing. You can imagine one blow and then another. And until you lose consciousness, until your brain has been damaged beyond life, you'd be aware of all those blows. And his last words are, don't hold this sin against them. Now, guys, it takes courage to speak the truth, but it also requires courage to be faithful like Christ, to forgive our enemies and those who persecute us and abuse us, be they friend or foe. It requires courage to say to God, vengeance is yours, payback is yours, my hands are off. Guys, that's not just Old Testament, that's Romans 12. It's that we don't take God's wrath in our hands. We don't take vengeance in our hands. We pray for those who persecute us. And something that's really interesting, two things. For Christians, Jesus says, you've been forgiven, you forgive. Matthew 18, read it later if if you're not familiar with the passage, Matthew 18. We're forgiven, we forgive. What you find when you forgive, though, is it's like a bitterness and unforgiveness is like a hot rock in your hands. It burns you to hold it, but you don't want to let it go. But when you forgive in Christ's name, what you find is, I'm free. My hands aren't burning anymore. I'm not embittered anymore. I have peace again. I have joy again. That's the fruit of courageous faithfulness in forgiveness. And also think of this. Jesus' last words are, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And and I just think, this is my take, Mike's take. I think in Acts 2... About 50 days later, when you see 3,000 Jews come to faith in Christ, I think in part that's an answer to Jesus' prayer on the cross. Because there would have been people in that group who were at his crucifixion. There were probably people in that group that said, crucify him. And 3,000 come to faith less than two months later at Pentecost when the Spirit comes down. And the witness to Christ is now empowered by the Holy Spirit. You don't know what God will do with forgiveness. Just like you don't know what he'll do with truth spoken, you don't know what he'll do with forgiveness. And think of this. It's it's not coincidence that Luke made sure he told us Saul of Tarsus was there when Stephen was stoned. Now think of this. Saul is there. He hears Stephen's prayer. And what happens to Saul? He gets saved. And again, I just think part of the deal is Stephen's prayer is answered in Saul's conversion. That God's in all the details here. Here's another example. This one from history. It's a good one. Yeah, we just keep... Oh, thank, uh, there. Thanks. This is October 6, 1536. You know, William Tyndale's one of the... Just one of the heroes of the Reformation. And this incident takes place just into the beginning years, decades, of course, of the Reformation period. But King Henry VIII did not like William Tyndale because he was doing everything he could to translate the Bible, Greek and Latin, into English so that, imagine that, people could read the Bible for themselves. And this was not PC back in the day under the Roman Catholic Church and under the King of England. And so he set the hounds to find William Tyndale, who fled to Europe. And he was printing Bibles, and they were being 
shipped into England in, in bales of cotton. And, and Henry, Henry was buying Tyndale's New Testaments to burn them. Well, he sent a particular guy after Tyndale. He found him. He betrayed him. He was arrested. He was imprisoned for a year and a half in Belgium before he was executed at the stake. The account reads this way. He was brought out to the place of execution. The crowd watched as he was placed. Think of Stephen, the lamb amongst the wolves. Think of Jesus, surrounded by the Sanhedrin. The crowd watched as he was placed up against a stake, wood and straw piled around his feet, gunpowder sprinkled on top. I suppose that was injury on insult. A chain and rope were placed around his neck. So this is the end of his life. All of his hopes for his future life on earth, they're over. Before he was killed, Tyndale gave his last words. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. This is just like Stephen and it's just like Jesus. He is not saying, Lord, get him. He's not saying, take down this tyrant. He prays, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Says the noose was tightened, he was strangled before he was burned. His body was burned, that's how his life ended. But two years later, Tyndale's dying prayer was answered. Henry VIII decreed that a copy of the Bible in English and Latin should be made available in every church in England. You never know where forgiveness is going to lead, just like you don't know where truth spoken is going to lead. We don't know. We're not responsible for that. We're responsible for the faithfulness to Christ. We allow the fruit to come from him. So do we have courage to forgive those who've harmed us, people that don't like you, or they've done ill by you? I'll tell you something that's equally hard, probably harder. Uh, forgiving those who've hurt someone you know and love, that's hard. That's difficult. Because for the sake of the person you know or love, you want to get the bad guy, right? But we're called to forgive. Same thing. How are we at forgiving in Christ's name? Do we have the courage to leave vengeance to God and to pray for those who persecute us? That's from Romans 12. And of course, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Oh, sorry, I'm always behind here. Uh, winding down, rejecting fear and embracing Christ-like courage is needed in all areas of life. Am I anxious over my physical health or the length of life amongst the settings of the COVID-19 virus? Did you know that the day of your death is already determined? Job says, Psalm 31 says, my times are in God's hands. The day of your, you're not going to die a day before, a moment before God says you're coming home. It's not going to happen. Think of this too. Um, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, you realize you're praying for your life to end. You know your, your life has to end for God's kingdom to come, right? So whatever your eschatology is on the relationship of the rapture to the second coming, if Jesus comes to institute his kingdom, your life as you know it is over. Your, your marriage, your family, your spouse, your job, you know, whatever on earth we set our hopes on, it's over. When we pray that, we're praying that life as we know it is done, that it's replaced with something bigger and better, with God's kingdom, Christ's presence on earth. We don't need to be fearfully careful about our life in that sense. 
We want to be wise and prudent, absolutely, as stewards of our health. You know, do you try and eat well and get exercise? I do, because I've got to. If I want to keep as much health as I can, as long as I can, absolutely. No fearfulness. God's got my back. My life is in his hands. Your life is in his hands. We're not going to die before he says so. How about this? Am I anxious about income? Guys, the the remedy to COVID-19 has destroyed, destroyed, destroyed lives, businesses, income, you name it. I mean, if there's a time for, not for Christians or anybody else, to worry about income and paying bills, it's now. Over 30 million on unemployment, millions more who just aren't looking for jobs. This is unparalleled in, in world history. This is unparalleled, this response to life. It is destroyed people's ability to pay bills. You can see all kinds of stories about this on the news and online. It's not a time for us to be fearful about income, though. Jesus says, Hebrews 13 says, if we have food and covering, we've got enough to be content because Christ has said, I'll never leave you. Christ's presence, his promise to us, is enough. We, we don't want to just say that as lip service. We want to live it. We want to believe it. Do I fear rejection by other people? Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you don't like me, am I okay? I'm okay. I don't like you. Are you okay? You're okay. God's for us. In the face of any fear, every threat, Paul says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You think of, when you go home maybe later today, the lyrics of A Mighty Fortress written by Luther in this time. You know, let goods and kindred go. Don't, Don't live like somebody fearfully holding on to things. You know, in the face of threats, real threats. Don't live fearful. Christians are called on to reject the type of fear that the world engenders and to fear God singularly. It's in the fear of God that the courage to face every lesser fear is found, as you see in the life of Stephen. Father, we bow before you as our only sovereign, our Lord and our God. Lord, you have every right to use us, do with us as you see fit. We thank you that as blood-bought saints belonging to Christ, that we know that your good, that your will for us is good. It's perfect. Couldn't be improved upon. Would you help us by your spirit, your spirit's presence and power to live out Christ-like courage towards the end of Christ-like faithfulness? Might you be magnified by Christ's life in us? Might we be agents of what you want to do in our world through Christ in his name? Amen.